0: Well, let's um, let's review. And for those who don't know, I always say this: I'm a school teacher, a former. I'm I'm a uh, what do they call it? A um, history teacher. A uh, rehabilitating school teacher, <laughs> trying to trying to assimilate back into the normal world a little bit. But I, I I I teach. And if you have this is like my classroom. If you have a point or a comment or a question, just throw your hand up. And when I stop um, talking for a minute, I'll call on you, and you can ask the question. It's very much kind of a discussion versus me just giving an oration, but one of the things I like to do is review what we learned last week, every week. But in Second Peter chapter 2, if you guys remember that, we read that last week. What does Peter call Noah? He is a herald, herald or yeah, some translations have the preacher of righteousness. Um, it's a, uh, I believe in the Greek, it's a karuso. Uh, in the Greek, it's a, remember, it's that person that goes from town to town and they're proclaiming the edict that was given by the king or the emperor. And um, that's what Second Peter, that's what Peter is saying that Noah did. He was like that, that Caruso, that herald of righteousness as he's building the ark. Now, he probably did that verbally to people that were coming and asking, what on earth are you building? Right? And mocking him or just, they're, you know, maybe innocently just curious about what he's building. And then he's having these exchanges and these back and forth verbally but then also I talked about how every nail that he pounded through a piece of wood he was heralding God's coming judgment right and he was like proclaiming God's judgment and he was doing that in faith right and then the earth was filled with this stuff called what hummus yeah you were waiting for that one weren't you hummus that would be an interesting world be a really bland world yeah it was filled with this stuff called Hamas. You guys cannot laugh at Patrick's jokes. Tell him. It just, it encourages it. Yeah, don't do that. Ignore his dad jokes. It was filled with this, and the Hebrew word is Hamas. Hamas. And um, it means in Hebrew, violence, but it's the idea of unprovoked, unwarranted violence, like a terrorist attack kind of violence. Um, and I was talking to uh, yesterday, or last week, he came with me afterwards and he goes, oh, I misunderstood your question. When you asked me, Faras is an Arabic speaker. He said, when you asked me what Hamas means in Arabic, I thought of the terrorist group. But he goes, in Arabic, Hamas means to be excited about something, to be energetic about something. That's what it means in Arabic or to celebrate in some times. And Hamas in Hebrew means unprovoked violence, like a terrorist attack. And it says that the earth was filled with that. And you remember last week, I was like, how, how violent could the earth be? How Hamas could it be? in that short amount of time. And remember I showed you in the past 100 years, how many genocides and how many wars there have been just in the past century, right? And hundreds of millions of people died uh, from genocide alone. And then another hundreds of millions of uh, people died through warfare. And remember it said of all the recorded history of mankind, only about 8% of it was peaceful so far. In all of human history, 8% has been peaceful. Wow. We're filled with Hamas, aren't we? How many years did Noah actively construct the Ark? Close. Hundred and twenty years he's constructing this ark. Yeah. Anytime in the Bible you see hundred and twenty, and I'm not a big like numbers like you know, I'm not gonna write a book and try to sell you a sensationalized book about numbers or anything. But anytime you see 120, that's significant because that's three forties. Anytime you see three forties in the Bible, that's a, that's like a time of the ultimate testing and look look through your your scriptures for 340s for instance how many days did yeshua fast in the wilderness and how many times was he tempted by satan oh i just held three fingers three times right how many times did moses ascend mount sinai three how many days each time 40 the list goes on it goes on and on how many how many years did moses live 120 years. And his life can be divided, divided into three 40s. 40 years in Egypt, 40 years Midian, 40 years leading the people of Israel in the wilderness. Right? How long did God say that he would, his spirit would strive with man? 120 years. See, the list goes on and on. It's just, there's so many 120s, 340s in scripture. A, a kosher baptism or mikvah um, is, is 40, 40 siyas of water and three steps leading down into it. It's the ultimate idea of testing and trial and purification. And that's how long Noah is going to construct the ark, it's 120 years. The Hebrew word for ark is what? A teva. And where is the only other place that's referred to and used? Exactly, the basket that held Moses. The only other place we see a teva It doesn't use the word for basket. It doesn't use the word for boat. It uses a teva, which leads us to believe that a teva is some kind of supernatural vehicle of salvation, isn't it? It's carrying, in a sense, a seed of a new beginning, like Moses is the seed of a new beginning. Something is is being preserved in the midst of great darkness and, and evil in the teva. A teva can also be a word. It's also the word for word, like devar and teva, they're a word. So, um, you know, the scripture says if you're in the word, you are preserved, right? Or you can be washed by the word, cleansed by the word. So a lot, a lot there, just in that word tava. What are some similarities between the construction of the ark, Noah's ark, and then the tabernacle or later the temple? Any similarities that you guys maybe saw? Mm. Yeah, so there's this phrase right here mi beit that's used only two times in scripture and it's always in reference to the ark or it's in reference to the aron the um, ark of the covenant and it means put it on the outside and on the inside what is it talking about the pitch now was the ark of, the ark of noah was covered with pitch right it was, it was wood overlaid with pitch on the outside and on the inside. What was the Ark of the Covenant? It was wood overlaid with gold. On the inside, it says, So right there, I mean, there's, there's many, many more parallels between the Noah's Ark and the construction of the tabernacle. There's three levels, right? And there's, inside, there's like a garden. There's a preservation of life. There's, you know, like, some would say that Noah's ark is like an ark for a man, whereas the tabernacle is an ark for God.
1: Could you get everybody to squish together a little bit? We just had seven more people come in.
0: Oh, yeah, we, we need to squish together. We have room up here. Or, yeah, I guess we have more people come in. So, uh, maybe I should tell you all where to go. <laughs> here, what if, Brenda, what if you move over to Stacy? And then we got this whole thing here. Okay. Cool. All right, are we good now? Yeah, yeah, over 100 people here oh, wow, okay. All right. Um, well, let's, let's go on then. Um, but something you can research more in your time. Remember, I always say good teaching, good teaching is not filling a pail. It's what? Lighting a, fire. Lighting a fire. Yeah, and hopefully I have lit a fire in you with some of these things where you can research them on your own throughout the week. So I wanted to follow up. Last week, I, I presented a challenge to you all, and I called it my ARC challenge. And I said, rest assured, I will hunt you down, and I will ask you how it's going. And remember, I said, uh, I said you might be thinking, man, this is like really legalistic. And uh, man, you're putting a lot on us, Gabe. Yes, I am. But that is scripture. God commands you to, remember it says, when you rise up and when you lie down, speak of these words, teach them diligently to your children, right? So I don't think it's too much. It's not me putting this on you. It's me just echoing the words of my creator. So I wanted to ask you guys, what have you found to be successful in your Ark challenge? Remember, I said it was, it was uh, making a time and a space and constructing kind of this arc in time with your family where you sit down and you read the precepts of our king together. And then you pray and you speak with the king. You pray and you speak to the master of all. What have you found to be successful? Have you guys done it? How, how many of you, you, you gave it, you get an earnest try? What have you found to be successful?
2: I, I called my aunt, Gary. And that's where I got my start in She and her husband, my Uncle Dan, they used to have help Ron Wyatt. Some people may know who he was. He's passed away a long the time. Now, but they're not doing well health wise, they're getting quite elderly. And he's gone blind having heart issues. But I shared that prayer that you put in there about the wife. Yeah. And 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 I didn't realize how down they were getting actually. So I I my helped me out. He hands me that paper, and I said, I, I said, "Let me I think he write this down. So, I we're not, passed it
0: on. Awesome, so, awesome. Okay. Very good, very good. So,
2: at least I got that much out
0: of it. Yeah, well, let me share. Thank you for doing that. And how many of you need that piece of paper today? You weren't here last week, and you get it, or you lost it. Jeremy's got some. Just keep your hand up. Jeremy will go around, and he will give you. I've got like 15 more today. I
3: don't know where it takes at
0: home. Good, good. So let me share as Jeremy's going around and handing these to you guys. Let me share what we do as a family. About seven o'clock, well, let me back up about 6.45, I usually shout out somewhere in the house, 15 minutes till Bible time. And then I go five more minutes till Bible time. And about seven o'clock, it's not not on the dot, but about seven o'clock, we all stop what we're doing because I have taken ownership of that and said, I'm going to do this, I'm gonna initiate this, seven o'clock. And um, then we just get around the table, and uh, I open, we've been reading through the book of Daniel, And um, we we just read, we started off reading two chapters of Daniel. And I quickly realized, um, like maybe you guys have done. What did I say? Consistency beats what? Complexity. Consistency trumps complexity. I quickly realized that I have three young men at the table and I'm reading two chapters to them. Um, it, It was a bit much for me to be able to hold their attention span that long. We kept it one and I found out at one chapter, it leaves you wanting more. It actually leaves them wanting a little bit more too, where they, they want to hear what's next in the story. So we're reading through the book of Daniel. And uh, what we're finding out is the boys are actually listening very well to the book of Daniel. Um, and they're actually making observations and comments about the book of Daniel. Like we're realizing Noah and Micah and Eli we're realizing that um, Nebuchadnezzar is uh, he's a very fickle man. He's going back and forth, and he, like, praises the God of Daniel one moment, and the next he's praising himself, and the next chapter is, like, the same pattern all over again. And they're getting to see that through the pages of Scripture, that sometimes the leaders of this world and the rulers of this world are fickle people, and they don't have, like, a good, like, moral backbone. And that's, that's very common in this day and age, right? So it's good for them to be able to see that and say, well, Daniel, though he's not the leader, he's not the ruler He's serving as the mouthpiece of the ultimate king, and he's reminding the king who is the king of kings. He's always humbling him and speaking these words. So it's good for them to see that and and to hear that. And then we just spend time in in prayer, and we just keep it simple. We pray. We um, pray through some of the points on that list there for unity and and protection, and uh, it's gone well. It's gone well. Um, But have you guys found any insights that that work for you that maybe you want to share with everybody else about sitting down with your family? Chris?
1: Mm.
0: yeah so your daughter for those who couldn't hear your daughter in Texas is calling you for you to pray that prayer over her that's beautiful good very good yeah keep it simple keep it consistent that's what I can tell you with with everything well good well um, I hope that you continue that that's going to go on for the rest of your life (laughs) my challenge stands the rest of your lives because um, you need to do that the rest of your life. As long as you have children, you should be praying with them, over them, for them. And, uh, you know, making an effort to pray for your spouse if you don't have children. Pray for your spouse. So, Ariana. Oh,
4: it's really amazing to see the fruits of it in your children after they leave the house. Like- yeah.
0: Yeah, awesome. it warms your heart. Yeah, absolutely. She's, for those who couldn't hear, she said it's amazing to see, after they've been doing that since the kids were really little, it's amazing to see the fruits of that. Now they're doing that with their families. Um, but yeah, and I told you guys last week, if you're already doing something, then don't worry about this piece of paper. Just If you want to steal it, use some of it. or just If you're doing it consistently already, then good job. Keep up the hard work. I just got a
2: different, so, I just got a different way. I
0: Good, good. Then no, just doing my, it is...
5: Read my every day. So. Good,
0: good. Yeah, just just pray with your spouse. Pray for your spouse. Mm-hmm. Good. Um. Well, I just wanted to challenge you guys in that. And I'll continue to hunt you down and follow up with you. But let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis 9. I know I say this every time, but we got a lot of ground to cover. We're going to read through all of 9 and comments as we go. And again, guys, if you have any comments or, or, you know, if it's pertaining to Genesis 9, just throw your hand up. I'd be happy to hear those because I learn a lot from you guys as well. So why am I skipping eight? I'm not skipping eight. Gen- open your Bibles to Genesis 8. Thank you. Diane is the only one paying attention today. Thank you, Diane. <laughs> Diane gets the gold star for the day. First, first in the Oneg line. That's what the- Good job. That was just a test. Genesis 8. Now, God has just destroyed the world, in a sense. He's covered it with water. And the last time we saw this was in Genesis 1, when it says that the waters of the deep were over the face of the earth. And he's reset. He's hit the reset button, with the one exception that there's eight people floating in a teva above that water. So in theory, we should see... As the waters are going down, we should see a lot of language and parallels to Genesis 1 and the creation of the world, right? In theory, if God is a God of patterns and consistency, we may see that. Now, I I, I had to correct myself. Someone came up to me uh, last week and said, I remember I said, who was the last person to walk with God? And I said, uh, Adam was, right? And then I had a couple of people come up to me and they said, no, Enoch was. So kudos to them. Flojo was one. I think Diane was another. They said, no, Enoch walked with God. So I was like, oh, I stand corrected. So here I am. I'm correcting the record here. Enoch walked with God. And then before that, Adam did. So Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. It says in the original language in which it was written right here on the screen, Vayizchor Elohim et noach And remembered Zechor, uh, Noah. Did God, God remembered Noah. V'et kol ha and all of the live, all of the life, all things that are living, and all of the behemoth, behemoth is where we get that word, behemoth. It's like all of the, the beasts is a way of translating that. Sometimes it's translated as large animals. So God's remembering Noah. Now, let's pause here because did God forget Noah in the ark? Was he like 370 some odd days later? He's like, oh man, I forgot, I gotta make the waters go down. No. See, this translation is so limited because this word zakhor, zakhor is so much deeper. Now I'm gonna let's go through a bunch of I'm gonna can I give you about 10 verses? Let's do these quickly um, for the sake of time. I'm gonna show you how this word zakhor is used and give you a better understanding of how and what this word zakhor means. So when it says Noah or God remembered Noah, you'll... Okay, yeah, I have a deeper appreciation for that word, zachor. So go with me to Genesis 9.15. Genesis 9.15, over one page or so. Genesis 9.15. He says, Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow is seen in the the cloud, verse 15, I will zachor my covenant, which is between myself and you and every living kind of creature. So you see right there, it's not like he forgot about the covenant. It's that he's, he's... He's, it's invoking the covenant. Let's go to um, Genesis nineteen twenty nine. Genesis 19, 29. Genesis 19, 29. It says, But when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he zachored, who? Avraham. And he sent Lot out. So he saved Lot's and Lot's family's lives because he remembered, he zachored, Abraham. You see that? It's not like he forgot about Abraham and he's like, oh, yeah, I remember Abraham. Now I got to save Lot. It's that he was something was stirred in him. His mercy was stirred because of Abraham. Now go with me to Genesis 30, 22. Genesis 30, 22. Genesis 30, 22. Then God remembered he zachored Rachel, Rachel. he heeded her prayer and he made her fertile. So it isn't like he forgot about Rachel, right? He, his mercy was invoked by Rachel and it was stirred up by Rachel. Now go with me to Exodus 2, 24, Exodus two twenty-four. Genesis, Exodus 2, 24. Genesis 2, 24. And God heard their groaning, the people of Israel. And God zakhored his covenant with Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. And God saw the people of Israel, and God remembered them. Did he forget about the people of Israel? No. His mercy is about to be invoked and stirred up because of them and because of his promises to them. Now go to Exodus 6, 5. Exodus 6, 5. Exodus 6, 5. Moreover, I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians are keeping in slavery, and I have zachored my covenant with them. Now go with me to Exodus, uh, Exodus 20, verse 8. Exodus 20, verse 8. Exodus 20. Now, this is talking about us, something that we have to do. We should zachor the Shabbat. Remember the Shabbat. Okay? Now, let's go. You guys are getting a better idea of this, but I'm going to continue to beat this dead horse a little bit. Exodus 20, verse 24 now. Exodus 20, verse 24. For me, you need to make only an altar of earth. On it, you will sacrifice your burnt offerings, your peace offerings, sheep, goats, and cattles. In every place where I cause my name to be, Zachor, I will come to you and bless you. So you see there's a deeper understanding of Zachor there. It's like to um, to honor or to, to memorialize something. Let me give you a couple more and then we'll be done. 20, Exodus 23, 13. Exodus 23, 13. Exodus 23, 13. He says to Zachor, everything I have said to you, and don't even invoke or Zachor the names of other gods or let them be heard crossing your lips. One more verse. Psalm 137, verses five to six. Psalm 137, verses five to six. Psalm 137, 5 to 6. People are like, why are you saying this so, so much? It's for my sake that I'm repeating it so many times. Psalm, what? Psalm 137, away from Marvin's sake too. <laughs> Psalm 137, verses 5 to 6. If I forget you, Yerushalayim, here on for i I'm sorry, if I forget you, Yerushalayim, may my right hand wither away. May my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I fail to zachor, you. If I fail to count to Rushalaim the greatest of all my joys. Okay, so let's go back to Genesis 8.1. God zachor, Noah. Does that give you a better understanding of this word? It, mean, it means that his mercy is being stored up for Noah. Does Noah have any idea how long he's going to be in this teva? No, he is counting on God's timing and his mercy. And it says every living thing, all the livestock with him in the ark. So God caused a ruach. Now let's go to Genesis 1, 2. He caused a ruach to pass over the earth and the water began to go down. Go to Genesis 1, 2. Now keep a finger there in Genesis 1 because we're going to go back and forth throughout the whole teaching here. Genesis 1, verse 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the spirits, or the ruach, it hovered over the water. Now go back to Genesis eight, one. So God caused a ruach to pass over, to hover over the earth, and the waters began to go down. Do you see what's developing here? A recreation process, right? Verse 2. Also, the fountains of the deep and the windows of the Shemaim were stopped up. Now, are there literal windows in the Shemaim? Are there windows that he can open and close? Are there, no, it's, it's a figure of speech. It's, 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 um, it's just saying that the rain stopped. And, and the, ra- the rain from the sky was restrained. But it's interesting because who's doing the stopping here? Is Noah? No. God is stopping, he says, shutting the windows of the sky. Now, this is the ancient sages say that God holds the keys to three things that are connected to man's existence. And we have the keys to everything else. Those three things that God controls exclusively he controls are these. Rain. If you don't don't believe me, go to Deuteronomy 28.12. Deuteronomy 28.12. The last book of the Torah, Deut- Deuteronomy 28, 12. Rain. Deuteronomy 28, 12. Deuteronomy 28, 12. He says, Adonai will open for you his good treasure, the sky, to give your land its rain at the right seasons and to bless everything you undertake. He control. he has the keys to the rain. In all the technological advancements, you know, I have 25 times the computing of power in this little device as the, the space shuttle did in the 1980s, right here, in my pocket, right? All the technological advances we can produce, there's one thing we cannot control in this world, and that is rain. Amazing, right? We've tried seeding clouds, we've tried doing all kinds of creepy other things, like we can't, we can't control when the rain will fall and when it will stop. And that frustrates us, doesn't it? What's another thing that he has the keys to? Secondly, the grave. The grave. Don't believe me? Go to, um, let's go to Ezekiel 37, verse 13. Ezekiel 37, 13. Ezekiel 37, 13. Then you will know that I am Adonai when I have opened up your graves and I have made you get up out of your graves, my people. Can anybody, as far as we know, bring someone back from the dead? I'm not talking about like, clear, boom. I'm talking about like, they're dead, dead, right? No, we can't. And that frustrates men and women to no end. People with unlimited resources at their fingertips cannot come back from the dead. Here's the third thing he holds the keys to is the womb. Childbirth. Don't believe me. Go to Genesis chapter 30, verse 22. Genesis 30, verse 22. Genesis 30, verse 22. We just read this a minute ago. Then God took notes of Rachel And he heeded her prayer, and he made her fertile. And then she conceived. See, God, there's another thing that human beings would love to be able to control, fertility. Right? And some of the grossest human beings have tried to do that on other people, where they've tried to make them infertile and deemed them unfit to reproduce. But some of the wealthiest of people they, they can't determine fertility. They can't determine the gender of the baby that's growing in the womb. They can't determine the sex, right? They can't do that. We're powerless in that regard. But who is powerful? God is. So let's keep going. Verse, uh, verse 3. It says, And the water came back from completely covering the earth. Now, did you keep a finger in Genesis 1? Go back to Genesis 1.9. Genesis 1-9, God said, Let the water under the Shemaim, the heavens, be gathered together in one place. And then what? Let dry land appear. You see what's developing here? It was after 150 days that the water went down. On the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Now, there are some scholars that believe that this is the very day that Yeshua rose from the grave but then there's some scholars that disagree with that. So I'm just going to put that out there and let you study for yourself whether or not that actually coincides. I can't say with 100% certainty one way or the other, but there is a lot of um, debate about that. It's interesting. You can read it later. Verse five. So the water kept going down unto, until the 10th month. And on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains were seen. And after 40 days... Noah opened the Zohar Now remember the ark had one opening and it was called a Zohar in the Hebrew language Zohar and Zohar is interesting because it is a window, but it it also could be just as easily translated as a, a brilliant stone brilliant like light giving stone. both produce light, right a window produces and allows light in the Zohar a Zohar is like a brilliant stone but I I tend to think it's like a window, but regardless, it's tell us that there's something, there's like a deeper spiritual connection going on here with this window, but he says he opened it that he had built and he sent out a raven, which flew back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. So then he sent out a dove to see if the water had gone from the surface of the ground, but the dove found no rest for her feet. So she returned to him in the ark because the water still covered the whole earth. So he put out his hand and he took her and brought her into the ark. And he waited yet another seven days and he sent out the dove from the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening and there in her mouth was a, fresh, a freshly plucked olive branch or olive leaf. Now, um, Ted and Karen were so graciously, uh, gracious to buy me a, a new book this past week, the, the Israel Bible. It's really interesting, it's the, it's the Hebrew Tanakh, it's the Old Testament in Hebrew and English. And for this particular chapter, they have an interesting comment because how many of you heard people will say the raven symbolizes this and the dove symbolizes that? I've heard people say the raven symbolizes the old covenant and the dove symbolizes the new covenant or something like that. I've heard people say and posit these different things. But this commentator has an interesting take on it and I want to read it to you guys if you'll allow me. Um, Let me see if I can find it again. Okay. He says, um, He says, Through rabbinic literature... The Jewish people are compared to a dove. Once a dove meets her mate, she never leaves him for another. And a dove, even when her offspring are taken from her, will never abandon her nest. In a similar fashion, the children of Israel are to be faithful to God. The sages of the Midrash comment that the dove that Noah sent foreshadows the journeys of the Jewish people Throughout time and history, just as the dove found no rest for the soul of its feet, so the Jews will find no solace in exile. Just as the dove returned to the ark seeking shelter, so the Jewish people will return from exile to the land of Israel. Like Noah's dove, the people have remained faithful to God. And now, after thousands of years of absence and exile, they have once again returned to his land. I thought that was a beautiful comparison. I like that one. I'm going to go with that one. <laughs> so we see here, she comes back, that, or she, I'm assuming it's a she. She comes back with a freshly plucked olive leaf, doesn't it? Now go with me to Genesis 1.11. So, so far we've had the spirit hovering over the earth. We've had dry land. What should appear next? In Genesis one? Genesis 1, verse 11. Let God, God said, let the earth put forth grass and seed-producing plants like fruit trees. or Olive trees, right? Each yielding its own kind of seed-bearing fruit on the earth. So there we see the, the growing of vegetation. Do you see the parallels that are happening? It's like perfect parallel between the creation of the universe and the restoration, the flood, right? Let's keep going. So Noah knew that the water had cleared from the earth. He waited yet another seven days and he sent out the dove and she didn't return to him anymore. By the first day of the first month of the 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. So Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked and yes, the surface of the ground was now dry. It was on the 27th day of the second month that the earth was dry. And God said to Noah, Noah, Go out from the ark, you, your wife, your sons, and your sons' wives. Bring out with you every living thing that you, are, that you have with you, birds, livestock, and every animal that creeps on the ground, so that they can swarm the earth. Does that sound familiar to you? The swarming? Remember Genesis 1? Be fruitful and multiply. Does that sound familiar to you? Mm-hmm. So Noah went out with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives, every animal, every creeping thing, and every bird, whatever moves on the earth, according to their families, they went out from the ark. In verse 20. So Noah built a mizbeach. I love that Hebrew word, mizbeach. And it's literally translated as the place of a zabach. Mizbeach. A place of a zabach. A zabach is like a sacrifice. It's an altar. It's taking, it's taking something, a piece of your livelihood, and surrendering that to a higher power. That's a zebach, and he's building a mizbeach, a place of sacrifice to God. And then he took from every clean animal a behemah tehorah, a pure animal. Now remember, we talked about last week. Um, there's this often misconception that. Um, Noah brought two of each kind of animal into the ark. He, it's false, right? Noah brought seven of every seven pairs of every clean and then two pairs of every unclean, presumably for him to eat while he's on the ark. Why else would he bring more clean? So we see here evidence of Noah keeping the dietary laws, the kosher laws. He's eating the clean animals. They're not able to reproduce because they're dead, right? He's eating them. But they be enough by the time he exits the ark, it'll be enough that they can reproduce in the earth. And also he's using them... To make sacrifices. So, so it's interesting, Noah, even hundreds of years before the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai, Noah has a has a clear um, discernment of clean and unclean, even though that's not spoken of in the pages of Scripture yet. And then we see that he has this understanding that I am to eat only of the clean ones. And, and then thirdly, I'm only to make sacrifices from the clean ones. There's a lot packaged in that little verse there, isn't it? And it says that Adonai riach, he smelled the sweet aroma. Now, does God have a physical nose that he uses to smell? No. God is metaphysical. He's he's not a physical creator. He doesn't have a physical nose with olfactory senses in it that can smell what we're doing or smell, you know, oh, they're burning more tires in Somalia or something. It's not how that works, right? But God perceives the hearts of men, and that word there—it's it's, it's better translated, in my opinion, as, as to perceive. In the ancient world, and the, the thought process is smell is connected to your perception of something or someone or a situation. Um, I was driving home from work yesterday, and I was hungry as I get out. Right. And uh, I'd already eaten all my food in my car. And I had two of these um, Krispy Kreme uh, coupons in my pocket. Yeah. Talk about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, man. So uh, I just drove on. But no, I'm just kidding. I swerved into the parking lot. And uh, I was like, you know, I'm going to get these for dessert for after dinner. But I'm hungry, right? And, you know, you don't go to Krispy Kreme when you're hungry. Bad things happen. So I I go into the Krispy Kreme. And it's like I open that door. And then the air just like, pfft. I was like, whoa. The smell of freshly fried donuts and glaze just like wafted over me. I smelled it. And I was like, yes. And then like Gabe's saliva glands were just like, pfft, right? And I, I had my coupon in hand and the guy handed me the donuts. And man, it was like sensory overload. Like when he, when he handed me the box of donuts, I just like smiled at the man. I was like, <laughs> I was like, may the Lord bless you and keep you, right? But when I had him in my hand, oh, here's the thing too. I, I preemptively, before walking into Krispy Kreme, I said, Gabe, you will not eat one of those donuts before dinner. You will not do it. So he set that box in my hand and I could feel the warmth coming through the bottom of the box. I was like, oh. This is a whole new level right now. Because I know that they're hot in that box. And you know, if, if you know the difference between hot Krispy Kreme and cold Krispy Kreme, right? It's a world of different, completely different experience. And when they got the, uh, the, the hot sign on, you know, and it's like, I call that the Shekinah Glory. But, you know, I, I was holding the box here and then I walked out and I put them in my car in the passenger seat of my car. And then I closed the door and the entire way home, I'm like, I'm driving like... Don't. No, no, don't look. Don't. And I'm smelling it, you know, and you go pick up pizzas or something. You smell the pizzas. It's like, oh, it smell. But it, it just enlivened my senses and my sense of hunger. And um, I didn't eat any. I was strong. <laughs> I, I, I practiced self-control. And the boy, I walked in. I walked in the house with a box of donuts. And of course, and you have three boys. They can see a box of Krispy Kreme from like 100 miles away. Like I turn in the neighborhood and they're like, Ah smell Dad, come with Krispy Kreme, right? So they they met me. They never meet me on the driveway. They never meet Hey, Dad, how was your day, right? But man, they came running. They're like,
2: Krispy Kreme.
0: And suddenly people were coming to my car that aren't even my kids and I'm like, no. But they, they walked me inside the house and they were like dancing around me, like playing like flutes and like all this stuff. And uh, yeah, and I'm like, of course, they're like, can we get one? Can we get one? I'm like, no, these are for after dinner. You will not even look at these donuts. And they're like, can we just open the box and we look at them? And um, so I had to put them on top of the fridge and like hide them. And yeah. And uh, I think they, I think they maintain, I think they had some after, after dinner as well, but there's something about smell. How many of you, you, you smelled something before and remind you of something from long ago, right? Um, I remember, you know, I, I work construction and, And um, sometimes the guys that are working there, they start fires out behind the house that we're building and they're burning like random stuff, you know? Like, um, gosh, they throw like a bunch of wood that's left over and then they'll just throw like a bunch of fiberglass insulation on the thing. I'm like, oh, that's not gonna burn. But you know, it just like emits this smell. And it's like this like, ugh, burning plastic and smoke and all this other stuff. And it's like, but you smell that. And I remember the first time, one of the times, every so often I'll smell it and I'll say, oh, that's weird, I can feel myself walking through this particular slum in Uganda. And I can like envision all of that again. It comes back, it hits me, right? And I smell that because there they just burn the trash along the streets and like, boom, it's there. And it triggers this memory. And maybe some of you have gone overseas in like warfare. Maybe there's a certain smell that reminds you of that, right? And it's like, ooh, man, I remember that smell. Smells do that, but they can also have a positive impact. Maybe you can smell like a, a shirt of your, your dad or something, and it reminds you of your dad. And you can hear his voice. But it's because the ancient peoples, you got to remember that when they smelled something, they couldn't see like particles in the air floating into their nose. They, they had to figure out what is this that's this. We can smell an odor, and it, like, affects our emotional state. And that's because the, the olfactory senses are, they have a direct connection to, to your, um, what's the limbic system that affects your emotions? A part of your brain that affects your emotions? Your sense of smell is so, connect, so closely connected to your limbic system that it affects your emotions. And ancient peoples realize this. And in some of the ancient, ancient world, the kings... Of the ancient world, ancient and recent world, they would douse their bodies. After they died, they would have servants come in and douse their bodies with perfumes and um, and different good-smelling things so that they would be accepted into the afterlife, and it would cover up the smell of the decay of their bodies so that the gods in the afterlife and the other realm would accept them. It's interesting, right? Because they didn't fully understand how smells work. But we were made in the image of God. And so when we smell something, it affects our emotions. Just like when God, you know, he didn't literally smell this. I mean, he's he's omnipresent, so maybe he did. But the sweet, what he's seeing is he's seeing Noah take a piece of his livelihood after being in this Teva for around 370 days. He's then offering it up and burning it to God and saying, thank you for your mercy. I look around this world and I, I got in this boat. When I got in this boat, it was full of violence and injustice and perversion and Hamas. And when I'm stepping out, it's empty and it's scary. But thank you for sparing me and my family. He's perceiving his heart and his motivations. And he says, because of that, now God God has emotions, just like we have emotions. The difference is that God has control of his emotions. And we as, we as his created beings living in a fallen world, we lose control of our emotions for the good or for the bad, mostly for the bad. We cannot control our emotions, right? Sometimes they get the best of us, but he has emotions. And it says it has moved his heart to mercy. And he says, I will never again curse the ground because of humankind since the imaginings. Remember, we talked about that word. That's the, the word um uh, which is like, uh, they're, they're schemings, right? It's the modern Hebrew word for computer. It's, it's the, the, the imaginings of a person's heart are evil even from his youth. Nor will I ever again destroy all living things as I have done. So long as the earth exists. Sowing time and harvest time, cold, heat, summer, winter. The day and the night will not cease. Go over to Genesis 1.14, go fast. Genesis 1.14. We should see something that tells us about days and seasons, right? God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to divide the day from the night. Let them be for signs and seasons, days and years. And let them be for lights in the dome of the sky to give light to the earth. So there we see the parallels continuing, right? Genesis 9.1. I'm going to do a couple more parallels before we wrap up. God blessed Noah and his sons and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Flip back to Genesis 1.28. Genesis 1.28. God blessed them and God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. Same verbiage there. Peru, rabah, And fill the earth, right? Same exact, same exact Hebrew words. Peru, rabba Malah. Fill the earth greatly. Now, this is this is the lie that is put forth by the the age, the spirit of this age, is that fruitfulness is ungodly, where God says fruitfulness is godly, and you look at um the. I remember we talked about how how uh, birth rates are rapidly declining in Western civilization, aren't they? And um, and then there's this, this this whole culture of of people who who are saying that you know um. That, f- that sexual encounters are, should be... It doesn't really matter if they, if they have the potential for fruitfulness. But that it's about physical pleasure in connection with another living being. More than it is about the potential for fruitfulness. Do so you see how ultimately the, the, the crux and the very point of the, the homosexual agenda... And yes, I'm calling it an agenda. It's a social contagion, if you want to be honest... The whole at the very crux of that is a lack of fruitfulness. You catch me? Okay. A lack of fruitfulness. And a lack, any for the lack of so so here, here's the thing, too. And this is C.S. Lewis. I wrote this quote down this morning. Everyone in this room and everyone in the universe, every human being in their soul is moving towards either a self centered life. With God outside of that. Or they're moving towards a centered life with God at the middle of it. A a decent, I'm not obsessed with myself, I'm obsessed with God's holiness. C.S. Lewis said that. Every human being, every single day is either moving closer towards, I'm becoming more self-centered. I'm serving myself, my pleasures, my desires, my fulfillment, my happiness, my physical fitness, everything else that comes along with that. I'm idolizing myself. Or C.S. Lewis says, or maybe you're moving towards, I am denouncing myself and centering myself on God's, uh, God's holiness. And when you look at a lot, of, a lot of the cultures and the subcultures of this day and age, and I'm, I'm, I'm closely aware of all of these, I mean, especially being a school teacher, I've, I've been exposed to all a lot of different subcultures. They all have one thing in common, whether it's LGBT or whether it's um, uh, sports or whatever, they all have one thing in common. Self-centeredness. They're so obsessed with self. You see that. It's like everything I post is my mental health, is this, is this, is that. It's like you're so self-centered. You need to repent of that and be God-centered. Even if, you know, even if I have desires in this way that, is, that are unhealthy, you know what? If my king and my maker said, don't do that, and he said, do this instead, that's the king said it. I deny myself. And we're in this like, debate, even in the church right now. It's like this debate. Is that, are they born that way? Is it this? You know, can they, can they be this? As long as they don't act on it. It's like, man, I don't know about you, but I, I died to myself. I was crucified with Yeshua. And I'm living for him. My desire should continually be transformed and, and changed to be in alignment with his desires. I should forget about myself and being obsessed with myself and be obsessed with him and his holiness. Does that make sense? Good. We're going to go with more parallels here. Genesis 9. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear and the dread of you will be upon every wild animal and every bird in the air and every creature populated the ground and all the fish of the sea that they have been handed over to you. And every moving thing that lives will be food for you, just as I gave you green plants before. So now I give you everything. Look over at Genesis 2.15 now. Genesis 2.15. Genesis 2.15. Adonai God took the person and put him in the garden of Eden. And he told him to cultivate it and to care for it. And Adonai God gave the person this order. You may eat freely from every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You see the parallels are continuing there. And he says, just as I gave you green plants, back in, in Noah's. time. So sometimes people say, well, wait a second. You know, it, it says that Noah can eat anything right here, right? And so why, why later is the Torah given? And then it says you can only eat certain things. So if Noah went out right here, he's like, oh, so everything, I can just eat anything. Do you think Noah went out and just started like finding roadkill and eating roadkill? Do you think he went out and started finding highly poisonous mushrooms and eating those? No, he has some level of discernment between something that's going to kill me and something that's not going to There is a line there, right? So we can't, we can't follow that, that logic. That's a faulty logic. What we see here as we're wrapping up is a washing and a renewal of the world, right? And we see even the number eight. Are exiting the ark and the biblical number for eight that that theme is consistent throughout scripture that eight is a number of new beginnings on what day did Yeshua rise from the dead what day of the week on the eighth day yeah the first day of the week on the eighth day he rose right said early on the first day of the week It's it's a number of new beginnings we see new life the beginning through the washing of the water and the word remember that Teva is a word for word right Go with me to Ephesians 5 as we're wrapping up here. Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5. And go to verses 25 and 26. Ephesians 5, 25 and 26. Yeah, Ephesians 5, 25 and 26. He says, As for husbands, love your wives just as the Messiah. loved the... The ecclesia in Greek, the church or whatever your translation says. Indeed, he gave himself up on its behalf in order to what? Set it apart for God, making it clean through the immersion of baptism, so to speak, in order to present his ecclesia to himself as a bride to be proud of without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but holy and without defect. This is how husbands ought to love their wives. So you see this language of when we come out of the world and into a new life with Yeshua, the dead is gone. Just like you remember all of humanity in whose nostrils is the breath of life, that is gone and dead. It's not completely forgotten. We don't, you know, we don't, oh, I'm not going to talk about that anymore, but we don't glorify and boast in that as well. But a new life is beginning, right? Right in a new life, like I said, that is in conformity and transformed by the washing of the word. Now, how do you wash yourself with the word? Faith comes by what? Hearing. Hearing what? The The word of God. So if you are not taking the time, like I said, each night to read out loud the word of God, how are you washing your family and your wife with the word of God? If you're not praying scripture over your family and your wife, on a regular and consistent basis, how are you washing them with the word? I'll tell you this, something else is washing them. There's there's only so much room for influence in their lives and you're allowing something else to wash over them. So stop that, interject in the middle of that, come in and say, I will wash you with the word, the living water, right? And I will teach you his precepts so that you can be conformed into his image. Now, everything's good, right? We're done. Story's over. Noah and his family, they go on to have lots of children, and uh, the world just becomes a beautiful, better place, doesn't it? Right? The story is just—and they lived happily ever after. (laughs) Yeah. Now, it's interesting because opponents to the God of the Bible will say— How can you worship a God that just flooded the earth and wiped out every living thing except eight people? How can you worship a God that has that kind of... It's like, is God the problem? I mean, I'm just... Even if you just take this book out of the equation for a minute and just look at secular history of the past 100 years. Is God the problem? And it's like, okay, so what if God is a mean, vengeful God? What if he is? Does... What are you going to do with that? Is that in the, does, just because you don't like just because you don't like God, and your misconstrued idea of who He is doesn't give you an excuse not to worship Him? Now, God is merciful, and God is just, and He is love. And the beauty of the gospel that's presented in this book—it tells every single human being that reads it and is confronted by it. That you are fallen and unable to redeem yourself, but you need a savior. You need supernatural saving. And as we approach the gospel, we have to make a choice. Do I embrace this notion that I am incapable of saving myself or do I just go on trying to save myself and just be another number in the story of human history? Do I move further away and into a self-centered, self-serving life? Or do I move and sacrifice myself and move towards God's holiness? And that's the choice that we have to make each and every single day, every minute of every day, because we were created to choose. With that, let's close in prayer, and then we'll do about five minutes of Q&A and comments. Abba, Father, I thank you for your mercy and your love. May we continue to die to self and be conformed to your image in the image of our Master and our Savior, Yeshua who is the ultimate teva, the ultimate ark. He is the door, and through him we find salvation. We praise you and thank you for your Shabbat. May we continue to worship through fellowship, through eating, and through our conversations. May it prompt us and inspire us and provoke us to do good works and to be heralds of the coming kingdom and God's judgment. In his name I pray, amen. Well, guys, do you have any questions or comments? Before we uh, break for lunch, anything? Yeah, Patrick. I promise this isn't a joke. Uh, but no, thank you so much for this. That was very exciting. Um, just kind
3: of, uh, I guess, pulling from what something you mentioned in this, this prayer, and also what I really like you said the, the cleansing, and then renewal of the urge. The and I think it's so wonderful how simple the Bible can be and how consistent. And when you have something, you know, this, this this concept or something that happens, it tends to orbit and it moves back around, mm-hmm. and maybe in a different way. And we keep seeing these parallels over and over and over again, and just like in Ecclesiastes, you know, there's nothing to do with the sun. Yeah. But one thing that I was wondering, you, know, you have discussed in, the, uh, in your prayer where, you know, Yeshua, he's the ultimate mark. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And just like when they got into the ark, they avoided, they are protected, Sheltered from this 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 wrath that was caused by sin, uh, you know the, the, the wages of, uh, of sin, and uh, they're protected. And on, on the other side, there was this, so there's that cleansing, and then there was the renewal. And all of a sudden, there's new uh, new things emerging, new growth, mm-hmm. and it was a clean slate. And then just like that, then being in the ark, there's us. Uh, uh, you know, we're we're in Yeshua, right? mm-hmm. we said. You know, we're under. So it's, it's like, when we're in Him, we're, we're going to be protected from the wrath that is coming. And then when all is done, said and done, we will be in the earth or in hmm. heaven. Yeah. So it's a wonderful parable. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Thank you for the comment. Yeah, Richard. Yeah,
2: just on that part where you mentioned the seven pairs, I have always, you know, when you read that, really, the word just says seven. So I've always thought, and I'm just how I look at it, it doesn't mean I'm right either. But I've always thought it was three pairs with one extra male, because he hmm. sacrificed a clean male, and he wouldn't have left one of the females without a mate. So I've always thought, oh, okay. one. I think it means not seven pairs, but seven literally. And yeah. So that's three pairs, you know, three sets of two, and then one extra male for that sacrifice. So he planned for that.
0: Imagine being, if, if that's true, can you imagine being the one extra male? <laughs> like, no, it's you. No, I'm not the extra male. No, you're the extra male. Yeah. Like, oh, man. Where is my mate on this book? Yeah. We'll go out. Uh, Karen and then Dave. Well, I was thinking about, you know, what you said about somebody saying, well, why would you want to um, worship a God who would destroy everybody? I'm thinking
4: to myself, if you were the only people left, why wouldn't you want to worship an entity that is that powerful mm. and that has that much control over life and death? Wouldn't you kind of like follow the ground and be, um, I mean, I, mean like, I think that's where it yeah. comes. This is God. I mean, he created or, or he could, in an instant, yeah. destroy the universe if he wanted to, or it could be gone in a, in a little, or literally, a blink of an eye. And I'm thinking, you know, we, we a lot of times we make him, really common, the mm-hmm. mm-hmm. guy upstairs kind yeah. of thing, I'm thinking like, someone who is that powerful, who's that great, who's that beyond our understanding, yeah. wouldn't you want to give him the reverence that he deserves, because right. he's so much bigger than our comprehension is like. That.
0: Yeah. We would call that, would that reverence, we, yeah. Would that? We, we would call that reverence fear, right? I know that's not very politically right to say, like, you should fear God, but like, okay, so I, this may, maybe you guys already know this, but this week I kind of came to this revelation that where there is sin in our lives, there is a commensurate amount and lack of fear of God. So let's say I sin through lusting or, or coveting someone else's possessions, that is a, there, there is a commensurate, a, a equal amount of, of lack of fear of God in that area. Where there is fear of God, there is a, a um, aversion to sin. Sin is sin is breaking God's law. Right. And so so when I break God's law, I, it's a direct affront to God's judgment and saying, I, I don't fear you in this particular area. And we may do we, we don't really think about it. in pre, But I, everyone now in this room knows that when you commit and break God's law, you're sinning. And just remember, when you wake up to that sin, that sin finds you out because it will find you out. You're saying, "Well, wow, I had a lack of fear of God in that particular area of my life. Restore in me fear and awe of who You are." Now, that's obviously that fear should grow into love, right? Like a father, number one, number one job, Adrian says, is like as a father, your number one job is to invoke fear in your children, <laughs> and then hopefully that fear later develops into love, where they grow to love you because of how much you've done for them and perfect, uh, protected them and provided for them. So yeah, that's that's our relationship with the Lord. Not nutshell. it's like. Fear you, therefore, I'm not going to break your commandments because I see what you're capable of doing. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, good point. Uh, David. Uh,
1: one thing about a number and then in dates is uh, you talked about 120 years, and I appreciate that I have not heard the, the multiples of 40 and such. Yeah. Uh, but where it says in 8 3, in the waters that steadily from the earth. At the end of 150 days, the waters decreased. Is there a significance? Of, mm. There probably is. But do you know a significance of that? You should. You should research it and teach us next week. Okay. okay. I don't know. And then secondly, uh, with it mentions specific months and days. Right after that verse, four in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, our breast upon the mountain going mm-hmm. down water decreased steadily until the 10th month
5: in the 10th month on
1: the first day of the month. Mm-hmm. Can, can we connect like other specific dates that yeah. have significance on those?
0: A lot of scholarship has now. been done to try to do that. It's tricky though because if you remember um, at the Sinai experience, God changes the, the calendar to a certain extent where he says that now this will be the first of your months then there becomes like these two um, manifold calendars the people of Israel are then following where you have like um, a civil new year in the seventh month and then the ecclesiastical new year in the first month. And so it's, we don't know for certain if the writers of this story are, are they, are they utilizing the ecclesiastical dates in the reckoning or are they u- utilizing the, the civil dates? And that's where the confusion lies. And, but I don't know for certain. Maybe you can find something that provides more certainty, but yeah. That's that's interesting, though. There's nothing coincidental in the Bible. There's nothing there by accident. So it's, you know, it's there, and it means something. It's just a matter of us. Like, it's the matter of kings to search it out, right? So, yeah, good questions. All right, Jason. Um,
5: I'm kind of thinking about this in terms of apologetics. Mm -hmm. Um, It's something I've always thought about. And so how does the cyclical nature of God... Because I've always kind of had an issue with presenting it as, I, I, I like to present it as life and death mm-hmm. rather than heaven and hell. Because mm-hmm. really, that's really what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about the cyclical nature of God and the imagery, of the, um, it's almost like birth and rebirth yeah. and, and cleansing and renewal. And so when you, when you talk to someone about it that way, I think, it kind of presents it more like God has set humanity on a course, given us choices in order to bring us through a journey yeah. with knowing him and the opportunity to continue to know him, you know, in yeah. an eternal state. Yeah. So can you comment on that a little bit as to the, the, how that affects how we talk about the gospel? Well?
0: Yeah, it really, I mean, if I understand you correctly, like, the change of times and technology or whatever, like... Um, that shouldn't affect, and you probably agree with this, it shouldn't affect our presentation of the gospel. Because, like Patrick brought up, there's nothing new under the sun. And, you know, they say, like, history may not repeat itself, but it definitely rhymes. <laughs> and I think humans, we don't necessarily exactly repeat the patterns of behavior, but they definitely rhyme from year on, to, you know, year after year on. And, and um, God is timeless, and the problem of sin is plaguing us up until the point that He is going to provide for us an ultimate redemption from all of that. And then, the, remember, the the snake crusher comes along in Genesis 3:15. So no, I think, in terms of like, you could say in terms of of separation from God or in His presence, or you could say life and death this is how the Torah presents it. Life and death. Um, you could say exile or uh, regathering. You know, you could use those types of of languages. But um in the heart of man is written eternity and they long for they long for justice they long for love they long for compassion they long for the things of god but unfortunately they've been presented wrong or they haven't been presented at all and um so i think presented in a genuine way um in a truthful way is the way to do it and that's timeless if that makes sense because truth is timeless.